Hello, everyone. It is Sara Fayyad from Wise Words. On today's episode, Stavros speaks to Ben Nelson. Ben is the founder and CEO of Minerva Projects, which aims to essentially make Ivy League education accessible, cheaper, and relevant to the 21st century. Their conversation sheds lights on higher education models and how inaccessible they are in the U.S. and around the world. They also speak about the controversy of Ivy Leagues and legacy admissions. And then Ben also highlights the model of Minerva schools and admission. Our host Stavros asks some really interesting questions in this episode, so definitely check it out. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm here with Ben Nelson. Ben Nelson, welcome to Wise Words. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start maybe by explaining a little bit about Minerva, the university that you founded. So Minerva was founded as an idea that other universities can look up to. One of the problems that higher education currently has is that it conflates two very important and very different things. One is prestige, and the other is educational outcomes. The assumption is that the more prestigious university, the better the educational outcomes. That's kind of the general perspective of the world. If you go and you ask somebody, where do you get the world's best education? They'll probably say Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, Cambridge, etc. However, if you look at the way that those institutions get, garner their prestige, it actually has nothing to do with educational outcomes. It has everything to do with the quality of research that their faculty make, which is, of course, a very important measure for research. Yeah. The amount of money that they spend, not necessarily on educational outcomes, and eventually the quality of students they attract. But in fact, if you look at measures even done by these same institutions, as to what happens when students that they admit wind up going to other institutions, overwhelmingly, the vast majority of those students have the exact same outcomes than if they were to go to those institutions, but instead have chosen to go to others that are far less prestigious. So what's interesting is that the, the whole world thinks, I get a better and better education, the higher ranked or the more prestigious a university is, even though there's no connection between one and the other. Now, why does this matter? You say, well, you know, so what? Right? I mean, you study physics at Harvard, you study physics at uh, a college you've never heard of halfway around the world. It's the same physics. What does it matter that some students get a, a certain stamp on their resume versus other students get a different stamp on their resume? After all, if the schools select students well, uh, for which that's, that's there, there's a whole lawsuit about about whether or not yeah. those, those schools are selecting students well. But if they select them well, well, you know, th- then you you have people who are more capable getting a better stamp of education, and the world is fine because of that. The problem with that kind of approach is that it devalues the importance of education. If education actually meant something then that means that going to institutions where there are going to be graduates who will be either starting or running the major institutions of the world means that perhaps they would want a different kind of education than the future dentists of the world. 
which perhaps would want a different kind of education than the uh, future uh, uh, assistants or executive assistants of the world, which may want a different kind of education than the future firefighters of the world, etc. Not that there's one type of education that is more important for the, uh, in one profession than another, but you would imagine if somebody, for example, uh, is running a country, you would want them to have the ability to make some systematic decisions and choices that are perhaps more important than if someone did not have the lives of millions of people um, depending on their decisions. And so that's a long explanation of why Minerva was founded. It was founded specifically to demonstrate what can be done for where a holistic education is put in place, not where a university just says, oh, well, look at what we're doing over here, and therefore you should assume we're doing great over there. But instead, looking at the science of learning, looking at how the brain actually works, thinking through from a curricular perspective, what are the types of tools that anybody in a position of authority, anybody who is going to be making decisions that affect the lives of others, really needs to have at their fingertips and then providing these multiple perspectives to students so that they can deploy them in the real world for when decisions have consequences. Yeah. And that's effectively why Minerva exists. And, and say a little, little bit about the, the model, because the model is very innovative, very, very unique, this idea of, uh, of a university without a campus. One of the things that is important to understand about how technology can be transformative for any sector is to think about the transformative technologies that we have today. Think about the computer. If the computer was really meant to be an improved typewriter, right? Mm -hmm. Computer has a keyboard, typewriter has a keyboard. Computer can generate documents with, uh, with text on them and uh, so can a typewriter. And they say, oh, well, you know, now a computer can, can do the same thing a typewriter can, but it's easier to correct the text. That's lovely, but it wouldn't have fundamentally changed the world. Computers are fundamentally important tools, right, compared to typewriters or any other tools, because they can generate functions that otherwise were impossible to generate with existing technology. The great breakthrough technologies don't ask, what are we currently doing and how can we make it slightly better with the new technology? The great technologies ask, what is it that we should be doing that was heretofore impossible before the advent of this technology? Minerva has that same approach. Rather than thinking about, well, you know, uh, education does what education does. You have a professor, they teach a class, they teach in that class effectively whatever they want. There's really no uh, um, oversight or making sure that those uh, professors wind up teaching uh, a class as they as they say they will, or that it is effective in any way. But let's let's do that and make it a little bit better. Let's make the classroom experience rather than non-effective, as most classes are, as the research shows, and let's make them slightly more effective. That wouldn't be particularly revolutionary. It would be important. It would be good to do. But it wouldn't really change the nature of what education is. Yeah. If you really want to think about how our, our approach, you, you have to understand what a real 
deep transferable education in. Transferable is probably the most important word to understand Minerva because a great education is one where you don't simply learn the things that you need to know in a particular instance because that would frankly be impossible. There's no way an educational institution can prepare you for everything you are about to encounter in life. In fact, there's almost no way an institution can prepare you for for even a, a small minority of what you're going to encounter in life because we live in a dynamic world. What an education should do is to prepare you to deal with new situations in ways that are systematic, meaning when you encounter a situation you've never encountered before, you can draw upon particular elements of your education, that your mind will approach the problem in such a way where you are more likely to come out with a positive outcome than a negative outcome. In order to do that, the brain has to be trained to transfer knowledge it has learned in certain contexts to other contexts. Yeah. So our entire educational approach is to provide particular learning objectives, habits of mind, things that will become automatic in your mind, and foundational concepts, ideas that are generative on which other things will build. And enable the student not just learn them in one context, for example, as perhaps occurs in certain universities, but take a concept and contextualize it both across fields and across varying experiences in the student's life. And so our curriculum is structured to introduce dozens of these learning objectives only during the first year and then additional learning objectives in future years that layer on top of them, and not only apply them across the curriculum, effectively looking, using technology at a curricular education as opposed to a course-by-course education, where what occurs in one class is affected by what a student has learned in other classes, and something you cannot do without technology, but even more so, to provide the students then real-world opportunities. And in our cases, our students live in multiple countries by the time they graduate. They travel together as a cohort from country to country during semesters or between semesters such that they can actually live as residents for four months at a time in various cities around the world and apply what they learn, not in a campus environment that shelters them from the rest of the world, but in a residence hall, living in the heart of some of the world's greatest cities, living there as residents, interacting with local government and business and nonprofits and educational institutions, and understanding how you apply this set of transferable knowledge into new contexts. And this is really part of yeah. why it's so important to rethink how technology can impact education. When you talk about key concepts, that suggests to me that you believe that there's a certain sort of canon of knowledge that needs to be imparted. Am I correct in thinking that? Or how do you approach this idea of core concepts? When people often refer to as a canon of knowledge, they think about content, right? Particular content that people need to know. But the way we approached it 
is to really look at the consensus perspective. And when I'm talking about consensus, these are completely non-controversial uh, points of view on what are the types of tools that effective participants in society should have. Now, how, how do we get to consensus in education? This seems very strange, right? In the sense mm. that some universities will say, well, you know, you cannot graduate without having read Shakespeare. And other universities will say, what? That's absurd. Uh, you can't graduate unless you've understood the Bible or, or the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or any other uh, text that people think is crucial. We completely sidestep the question of content. There's too much content in the world for us to say that students need to know this content versus that content, and that's crucial. However, I don't think a university on the planet would say that students don't need to understand how to think critically, right? I don't think there's a university in the world that would say that students shouldn't think about how to solve problems creatively. I don't think any university in the world would say that universities uh, don't need to teach students how to communicate effectively. But each one of these broad capacities, and we would add to that the, the uh, perspective of how to interact effectively and understand interactions not just from an interpersonal perspective, but also to understand how various systems in this world actually interact with each other, how markets interact with uh, political systems, how ecosystems interact with society, etc. Right? So these are not controversial points of view. The problem is, is that to just say, I'm going to teach you how to communicate effectively, I'm going to teach you how to think critically, is meaningless. Because what does it mean to communicate effectively? There's so many underlying components to it, and they're very different from one another. So for example, one thing you have to know is think about audience, right? You and I are having a conversation on an education-related podcast. So my assumption is that the people listening to the podcast aren't just vaguely interested in education, but that this is something which is really important to them. So the nature of our conversation, the words that I use are going to be a little bit more technical and they're going to be a little bit more detailed than if I were to talk to a general population audience. So understanding who your audience is is important as a factor for how you communicate. Yeah. But at the same time, you also need to structure your communications in ways that are effectively understood, right? You have to actually make a coherent, logical point. Now, these two factors are very different aspects of effective communication, but they interrelate. But in a sense, even even in this in this example that you've given around communication, you you are making an an assumption. You're coming down on the side of of actually saying, "Well, you have to make a logical and coherent argument," which 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 means that you're giving you're giving some sort of primacy to to reason, as you should. Yes, in my view, correct. Even correct. even though even though. We know that um, effective communicators often pull at the heartstrings. Um, well, and, and by the way, that's also important to understand. It's important yeah. to understand, you know, other factors in effective communication yeah. means that you understand the cognitive biases of your audience as well. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So these are all important factors, but you are right. 
that a rational or a reasonable person would take into account all of these various factors yeah. as opposed to just, you know, say something from one particular angle and leave it, uh, leave it from that, to that perspective. And that actually is the most important thing to understand about a Minerva education. Yeah. What we don't do is we don't tell you, oh, you know, in all situations, you need to think 73% on audience and, you know, 10% on sentence structure and 5% on cognitive biases. <laughs> that, yeah. we, there's no formula. Sure. Well, instead, we provide students tools and we try to make them inherent, create intuitions around using those tools such that when they actually find themselves in situations where they need to use these capacities, which is effectively every day, many times a day, that they can draw upon them as it makes sense to them. So Minerva is not an institution that tells you how to think. It's an institution, and certainly not what to think, but it's an institution that provides you tools to be effective effectively frameworks of thinking, multiple frameworks with which you can approach life as it makes the most sense during the particular situation. Yeah. And that really, in our opinion, is what every single institution of higher education must do. We seem to be at the moment living in, in a world where, you know, facts don't, don't seem to matter as much as they used to. Right. Expertise is sort of frowned upon you know, I, I read a very nice introduction to your to your book given by Senator Kerry. He speaks about ill-informed folks making essentially poor decisions. How do you get around that problem without at least or paying attention at least to some again core core concepts like uh, you know? Let me just put out just basic scientific literacy, for example, out there, Correct. or epistemology. You know. How do we know what we know? How do you get around not having this be part of some sort of core curriculum? Oh, uh, it's very much part of what, what our core curriculum is, right? So if you think about um, critical thinking, right, if yeah. you cannot ascertain using evidence, we refer to this as evidence-based, yeah. what is a claim versus what is a fact, you're mm-hmm. in trouble. Okay. The fact of the matter is, is that, yeah. The overwhelming majority of people don't know the difference between those two. No, they don't. Yeah. And let me just add, because your question was an excellent one. And let me posit a bit of a controversial point of view. Right now, we are in the more learned parts of our society, horrified yeah. at how the uh, quote-unquote masses, the general population, right? these derogatory terms towards people that people use, are making these absurd decisions, backing ways of life or uh, leaders that are, from our perspective, making disastrous decisions. It's so easy to blame others and say, oh, people are ill-informed and, and how silly of them and how could they look at it this way or that way. But I would posit that if the learned leaders in the world would have made better decisions over the past 20 years, then we wouldn't be in the situation. Yeah. No, I, problem, I, I, I agree right? with you. Yeah. And, and, and that's the issue. The issue yeah. is that people who are intelligent, who are well-meaning, who want to see good things done in the world, 
don't have the tools to put those ideas into effective practice. And when that occurs, rational choice is to try an alternative. And that's what we have to fix. Because otherwise, the world will continue to turn to alternatives that promise great things, and of course don't deliver in the long run, can provide that kind of salve. And what we need to do is ensure that those who are educated, again, this comes back to my original point, those people who are put with the great privilege, with the responsibility of making decisions that affect the lives of others, have at their fingertips systemic thinking tools that they can use to make those decisions better. By the way, I'm just, just a, I mean, a, a couple of points. When, when I, I mentioned the uninformed, I wasn't alluding to um, oh, I, I know. What, is, I wasn't... what is popularly you know, referred to as, as the masses. In fact, right. I would go further, and, and, then, and I just want to pick up something that you, you said in your introduction. I think it's actually a failure of institutions of higher learning, precisely for the reason that you gave, in the sense that they're not really focused on education per se. Attending an elite institution is really about signaling who you are than, than acquiring an actual education. And, and I started, at least in my conversations, drawing a distinction between being well-schooled meaning right. you've attended a good institution versus being educated. Absolutely. Um, you know, what I like about what you're trying to do is, is you're actually trying to focus precisely on the weak link, which is what is a really good education? What do you want the person that comes out of your institution to be able to do in terms of, you know, the way they think, the way they behave? And in that vein, we're in the process, and we're actually already having quite a bit of success in actually redefining what well-schooled is. Because exactly to your point, right now, well-schooled and well-educated are completely orthogonal. Yeah. And we're trying to get the popular understanding that well-schooled and well-educated must be synonymous. What's your, I mean, just a little bit of an aside, but what's, what's your view of the tendency now for, especially in the U.S., I think, for Ivy, Ivy League institutions to, to reserve quite a significant number of places for legacy, what they call legacy yeah. students, for the students well, of alumni or, or those who give generous gifts? It's, it's a disaster. And uh, it's a disaster societally. It's actually one of the reasons that you see populist movements in the United States, on the left and on the right of the political spectrum. Yeah. And it's, it goes far beyond legacy, far beyond. Yeah. So if you look at the college application process, every single step, especially in the quote-unquote need-blind institutions, the ones that don't bother to ask how rich mommy and daddy are, yeah. the entire application asks how rich are mommy and daddy. Right? And they say, where did you go to school? That's a proxy for how rich mommy and daddy are. Of course. Yeah. When they ask you, show us your SAT scores. Right? The better your SAT tutor, the better your scores are, more correlated with wealth and IQ. When they ask you to submit a pre-written essay, it shows how much you paid your college counselor to work with your mother to write it for you. If they ask you, do you row? Do you sail? Do you play golf? Do you fence? All the things that people do in the inner cities all over the world. Of course, yes. Right? <laughs> These are all questions. And so the problem is, if it were just legacies, if universities were just to say, look, 
20% of our incoming class is going to be reserved for the people who've supported this institution in the past and have shown tremendous help in enabling this institution to exist. Not great, right? Maybe that should be 5%. Maybe that should be 10%, but you can okay. it. Yeah. Right. But when you look at 50% of the students in the Ivy League that can afford to pay $70,000 a year, effectively coming from the 1% wealthiest households in the world, yeah. you realize that the preference for the wealthy, not to mention the next percent and next percent, is crushing. Right, yeah. And we know that talent is broadly distributed across socioeconomic class, that it is broadly distributed around geography, ethnicity, etc. But these universities actively discriminate, actively, in order to do what they call curate a class. And this, the perspective of preserving some kind of institutional, non-educational imperative to sustain the glee club of the university and the fencing team of a university, etc., as opposed to the very serious task of enabling social mobility and the very serious task of enabling the very best students to be in the very best potential positions to have influence over the world is a disaster for the world. It is an absolute unmitigated disaster. And my very deep hope that this lawsuit uh, that, that is going through in the courts right now about active discrimination against one ethnic group yeah. in the United States will expose in a much more systematic way the core issue of how a university chooses the people who are going to be in a privileged position in the world and how dangerous that is to society. No, I'm, 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 I'm with you on, on this. And say a little bit, Ben, about how Minerva addresses, because you are a selective institution. Yes. So, so, and you do charge fees. Correct. Tell me a little bit about how you address some of these, some of these issues. So extremely important to talk about this. As, as you can see, I'm passionate about this subject. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, Passion so, is good. As best as we can, we remove all proxies in the application process for wealth. And so, for example, it's important to know how you did in high school. But we do not give any extra weighting to the number one graduating student from the most fancy private school in the world versus the number one student of a public school or uh, an openly available school to the public that's free any other part of the world. Yeah. If you have shown the determination and grit to get to the very top compared to your peers, that is an indicator of grit for mm -hmm. us. That is an indicator of your ability to dig in and do what is necessary. At the same time, we need a standardized view of people's capacities. So rather than looking at a SAT or other types of examinations that you can effectively buy points on, instead, mm -hmm. what we do is we look for how a student performs on a set of challenges that we've put together, many of whom you have no idea what we're asking for. For example, we'll do a, a recorded 
interview, both written and oral, where you type your quote unquote essay while you're on camera. Yeah. And the essay isn't tell us how great you are. Uh, it's some random question for which there really is no uh, discernible correct answer. And we analyze it in a myriad of different ways, and you don't know what we're looking for. So there's no way to cheat. There's no way to pay a college counselor to actually tell you, oh, this is the way to game the system. And then we look at not a certain prescribed set of things that we value, like fencing and golf and you know the yeah. things that people do, but we just look for ways in which you have had passion in your life and have been able to pursue it to an extraordinary way. And that could mean overcoming obstacles. It could mean uh, demonstrating tremendous amounts of creativity. Uh, it could mean showing leadership. And by the way, turns out those things have nothing to do with being rich. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when you look at it from that perspective, the student body at Minerva is the most socioeconomically diverse student body of any elite university in the Western world. And it's not because we try. It's not because we have quotas. It's not because we give advantages to poor applicants. We truly are need blind. We mm -hmm. do not know how rich our applicants are. There's nothing that tells us how rich they yeah. are. And the way we get them to afford Minerva, first and foremost, the fees at Minerva are dramatically lower than a typical American university. A typical American university, outside of room and board, the cost of being alive, which of course you have at Minerva as well, but uh, now are about more than $50,000 a year, five zero thousand dollars a year for tuition and fees at typical universities, not including housing and food. And at Minerva, not including housing and food, the tuition and fees are less than $15,000, well under a third and close to a quarter of what they are in traditional institutions. And on top of that, we give financial aid to more than 80% of our students. So think about this. Think about traditional elite universities where 50% of their students can pay $70,000 and at Minerva where barely 15% can afford $30,000, which is tuition fees, room and board. Having said all of that, there is no way to account in higher education for the dramatic disparities of the more fundamental access to basic education. Yeah. We can't solve that problem. No. Right. Yeah. So uh, you still have to have schooling. You still have to have drive, of course, which does not uh, necessarily connect to background, but certainly the schooling, people who are wealthy can provide their students better opportunities. And so if you look at the top 1% of global households, and Minerva, yeah. we're roughly 5 or, or 6 or 7%. So we're well overrepresented in that demographic, but we're not 50x over. No, yeah. no, I'd say it's, yeah, it sounds like it's sort of a, it, it's a reasonable balance. But does that mean, though, that you, again, in, in making your admissions decisions, you, for example, may give greater weight to grit, leadership, perseverance versus, say, just as kind of pure academic chops? Does that enter it? Does that sort of trade off enter into your admissions discussions at all? It, it does absolutely, though they're not discussions; they're formulas because we want to keep uh, we want to keep it truly uh, uh, truly balanced. Um, mm -hmm. But we actually look at the two as being related, right? So I mentioned, for example, this ability 
to distinguish yourself uh, versus your peers. Well, you know, intelligence is a very important aspect of how well you do in school, but so is grit. There are a lot of very intelligent people that do terribly in school because they choose to. Right? Yeah. There are many other reasons. Sometimes there are life circumstances. Sometimes there are various disabilities. But there are a lot of students that say, oh, I'm too good for this place. This is boring. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who cares? Right? I have mm-hmm. no interest in those people. No, I, absolutely. And, and, and in equally, look, there are plenty of people that do very well in school and then somehow never take off in, in their professional uh, Correct. lives so as you, well. You, so. so you need to find other, other examples of it. Exactly. Yeah. And we try yeah. to triangulate everything we look for. We don't look for one data point. We look for a couple, right? So we look for how well you do in school, but then we also look at how well you do on the various ways that we assess you, right? We look at the grit you demonstrated in a school environment. We also look at the grit you demonstrate outside of a formal schooling environment. So we try to triangulate everything. You said that we we apply a formula. We don't have discussions yeah. in admissions. That, that that sounds to me that there's sort of some sort of algorithm that makes the decision. That how how does that work without uh, that revealing is, too much? Right. That that is exactly how it works. Okay. Uh, and and this is a uh, you know most most universities. Are, Oh, yeah, it's not a formula, it's an art, it's all the rest. And every university has a formula that assign points to various aspects of your uh, of your application. And of course, all the points basically are how rich you are. Uh, and then a few others that, that somehow get people past the bar. But we have the same thing. And so we give a certain set of points to your performance in high school. We give a certain set of points to the various components of uh, what it is that we look for when we have students go through the challenges uh, during the application process. And we go uh, give a certain uh, set of points to analyzing people's accomplishments. We use rubrics to assign those types of points. And in fact, we use yes-no decision tree processes such that people who assess your application don't actually know what it is that we're looking for. They answer a set of yes or no questions They Mm -hmm. don't know whether the yes or the no is what we value. And they don't know which of the yes, no questions are actually used in the rubric, nor do they know the weighting of the rubric for the final formula. And and, and the rationale for this is is what you want to, as much as possible, take bias out of the the process. Exactly. All we try to do is we bend over backwards simply not to discriminate. We are highly discriminating, but non-discriminatory, mm-hmm. right? So very hard to get into Minerva, but anybody has given the exact same fair shot at getting yeah. in. Now, why, tell me a little bit about why it's important to make it so hard to get into Minerva. So th- I get this question often because they say, look, you're, you're producing this amazing education and yeah. you know, why are you not flinging the doors open and making it so much easier? So there are two reasons for that. Reason number one is practical. When you try to educate in an egalitarian way, it requires philanthropy. Mm-hmm. It requires people to come and back what it is that you're doing. And even at our small scale, by having 150 students a year, we need to raise tens of millions of dollars to establish the university such that it can service these students in perpetuity. Yeah. Right? There's, there's no way around that. And that's, that's important. And if we want to serve yeah. more students, which we'd be happy to do, we would need to raise even more philanthropic funds for the institution. And so one is a very practical reason. 
But there's a second reason, which is perhaps even more important, which is that in higher education, as we've discussed earlier, there is this conflation of prestige with desire, with outcomes. And if we were to have done everything Minerva has done, but we would have picked, you know, 150 students at random with no application process or what have you, be some kind of non-selective open institution that mm-hmm. could have had the same exact results, you and I would not be having this conversation oh. because we wouldn't have gotten the funding. It's not because yeah. of you. Yeah. Yeah. It's because no. of the way the world would have, would have approached us. We wouldn't have gotten yeah. the funding. We wouldn't have gotten the press attention. We wouldn't have gotten this positive cycle of being a highly selective, desirable institution from the same grain as other institutions are. And so what's important in the Minerva journey is that we effectively played the same game that other institutions did. But we did so from a higher moral ground and such that we redefine what excellence is. We redefine what elite approaches to higher education are such that when the rest of higher education looks up, they have a model to follow, which is going to fundamentally improve the state of the world. How are you going to be able to influence these institutions that have been around in some cases for a thousand years? Right. Thinking of, of some of the elite European universities, um, in the case of Harvard, almost 400 years. How are you going to nudge them in the direction of, of what you're talking about? Well, we have we have a, a three-pronged strategy. <laughs> Prong number one, which we've been employing quite effectively over the past six years, is public shaming. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, the people who operate these institutions, as many constraints as they fall under, as much uh, a difficulty as they have to satisfy various constituents, these are overwhelmingly good human beings. Of course. They are people yeah. who want to see good things happen in the world. I recently saw a university president, a very distinguished university president, uh, who may waxing uh, poetically about how his institution teaches students how to think critically. And during a post-speech interview publicly on stage, was asked a very simple question, which was, how is it that you teach students to think critically, <laughs> given all the claims that you made? Yeah. And it, it was if he made a dance on stage on banana peels. I, I mean, he had no answers, and mumbling something about, oh, well, we learn, uh, many of our students wind up doing research in labs, and boy, they learn how to think critically that way. I mean, just yeah. an absurd response, because he doesn't know. Because no university knows how they teach critical thinking skills because effectively they do not. They don't do it in transferable ways. And so these institutions want to do a better job. And drawing attention to a better path is the first way. Mm -hmm. The second way is to prove the hypothesis that education matters. To prove that selecting students from varying socioeconomic backgrounds from all over the world, providing them a better education will yield better outcomes. Because if that isn't true, then the Minerva journey is for naught. There's no reason uh, for us to be here. And so we can, uh, we've already demonstrated, despite the fact that we're only graduating our first class this coming May, we can show through the work our students do in internships, how they interact with the real world, their third party assessments, 
even when they enter hackathons, how it is yeah. that our students perform versus students and graduates in many cases of other institutions. And third, and this is perhaps the most important, you don't need to convince the entire sector. All you need to do is start changing the approach at a few institutions. And then the institutions that look up to those institutions will say, wait a second, they're doing something different. And a few of the people who look up will say, maybe we should try. And then you keep going, right? In the sense that at some point, when students have a dozen different opportunities to get a Minerva education versus getting a standard education, students will choose with their feet because of the outcomes and because of the public campaign to inform students of what is the potential of a modern education. So, so if I, I mean, if I can just synthesize what you've said, I think what you're hoping to inspire change at the sort of, at the point of admissions initially, at least make that much more equitable and truly leads blind than it is today. You're trying to sort of inspire change at the sort of curricular level, perhaps in terms of getting people really to take the idea of education seriously. And, and, and you're hoping to do that essentially by sort of a combination of, of inspiration and shaming. And facilitation. And so there are actually three aspects. We, we, we want to change the university's approach to the curricular structure. Their approach, their pedagogy, the way they teach, and the way they operate, admissions, the cost of operations, et cetera. And you're exactly right that we want to do that by both sending out a very powerful moral message, we believe. People can't just ignore. Do so by inspiring others to change and facilitating that transformation by working with other institutions to bring them along this path. You mentioned the first uh, cohort is graduating. You know, you've obviously been sort of tracking their performance, so you, you're confident that the model is is working at least at the sort of at the point of education. Right. What are your plans in terms of tracking how they do now as graduates? It's crucial. You know, oftentimes universities will say we exist not just for your first job but for your fifth job. We think that is true, and we think that you need to actually measure and see how our students contributing to the world, not just in the types of careers they pursue, because frankly, we are encouraged by the fact that our students want to pursue a dizzying array of different types of, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. of career paths, given the, how few students we have. But more importantly, that you see the impact they have in their chosen career and that you can see discernibly that they are providing a faster trajectory and a more impactful trajectory in their career than they would from other institutions. And that is important to measure across the many years because we do have a relatively small sample size. Only 100 or so graduates this year and 150 graduates in a typical, in a future class, right, after our first class. And so we do have to track this for quite a long time and for quite a number of years. However, the early indications are so powerful that, you know, if this were a clinical trial, you would suspend the clinical trial and roll out the medicine <laughs> immediately. Uh-huh. Okay, well, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's encouraging to hear. And I, I, I would hope also that you're going to track beyond just sort of the, the specifics of the career. You're going to look at, as you say, what, what's the impact they're having on society as well. 
I would imagine that you'd be disappointed if they all became investment bankers and consultants. Exactly. And, and that, that's why I said... That and, and I speak as a former consultant. Disney, right. As am I. As yeah. am I. And, I. and that's why I'm talking about the dizzying set of, of career yeah. interests students have. It's very nice that uh, you know our students are not all going to be consultants, bankers, uh, dent- uh, you know, doctors, and uh, and lawyers. Not that there's that we have some of each. They are, but they are not the, the bulk of our students. That's encouraging to hear. Ben, I know I'm, I'm sort of conscious that we're coming up to to the hour mark. So let me just ask a final question, which is, what are your plans for, I mean, beyond obviously you know, trying to raise more funding, but how can the model, your model, be scaled? Are you hoping to scale Minerva or are you just going to be content with trying to sort of inspire others to follow? No, we're certainly not content with just inspiration. And so we scale in, in a couple of different ways. The first as a constant and, you know, sometimes people look at raising mon- uh, money or raising funds in higher education as, well, it's an ends to a means. But in some way, it in and of itself is also an ends. In the world of higher education, public support for new models is what gets attention. When a university announces a a billion-dollar investment in some initiative, people pay attention. And the good news is we don't need to raise a billion dollars, not even close. But when there is public support for an institution, more and more people pay attention to that. And that goes a big way towards both the operation of the institution and the good that we do, but even more importantly, towards that part of inspiration. But the way that we really scale the Minerva uh, educational model is to spread the education to other institutions actively, not passively, not just mm-hmm. hoping that they're inspired, but actually enabling the system, the curricular structure, not necessarily our curriculum, but a curricular approach of habits and concepts that interleave throughout the curriculum itself with fully active learning pedagogy that is based in our fully active learning technology, right? And scaffolded uh, curricular technology. And that technology was built in order to be embedded into existing institutions. And so we scale not just when other institutions are inspired by what we do, but when they actually implement the system that enables their professors and their institution to teach in a more holistic, more effective way. And so this is is a service that you offer? Yes. So the university itself was created using the technology and curricular structure that was developed by the Minerva Project, the organization mm-hmm. I initially found, founded. Yeah. And the Minerva Project will then enable, and is now actually beginning to enable, other institutions to follow suit. How can people find out more about what you're doing or to sort of follow you on, on social media? They can follow either at Minerva Schools or at Minerva Project uh, or both on Twitter. We have Facebook uh, page as well, or of course they can just go to our URL, which is www.minerva.com. Dot KGI for the Keck Graduate Institute. Dot edu. And many thanks for that, Ben. I, I feel that we could have gone on, so maybe we can do a, a revisit at some later date. But I thank you for your time and for sharing your wise words with us. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Savros. All right, that was Ben Nelson, founder of Minerva Projects. 
Please shoot us some tweets or an email if you have any questions or requests for future content. We want to hear what you think. So do let us know if you learned something from this episode. You can find all the links in the show notes. Have a good one.